Let us remain standing at this time, and I invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to open to the 18th chapter of Luke, verses 9 through 14, a passage that you probably have heard before and have read even from your youth, but may it be very fresh to us this morning as we approach God's Word from Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off. Would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you illumine us to your revealed word this morning. May you cause, Father, the message of free grace to penetrate all of our hearts this morning. We ask, Father, that at the end of this service, our hearts will be like the legs of deer that run quickly unto you. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Bless us now by it for your glory and for our infinite good. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, with Martin Luther's posting his 95 theses on October the 31st, 1517. It's around this time of the year at the close of the month of October that you'll find newly published articles and newly published books and reprints and republishes of old books on the subject matter of the Reformation. And there are different impressions that people have about the notion of the Reformation. And one of those impressions, sadly, seems to be prevalent, in fact, in some circles, that these were simply ivory tower debates among intellectual theologians over technical matters, if not overly technical matters of theology. And they really are isolated to a bygone era of the 16th century. Well, I certainly trust that that is not the impression that any of us in this room have of the Reformation, wherein there was a recovery of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In fact, it was not an issue only reserved for and affecting theologians, nor was it overly technical, nor was it a matter of a bygone era that has no import into our lives currently. No, these matters are as important to us today as they were not only during the time of the Reformation, but in the time of the early church, 
where we find even in Paul's writings especially, and also, as we're going to find this morning, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. In fact, those two words that were hotly discussed during the time of the Reformation are actually found in this very text of Luke chapter 18, where we find the word righteous and we find the word justify. These are biblical terms and They stand out not as peripheral matters, certainly not peripheral matters to the Apostle Paul who had much to say about it, but nor were they peripheral matters to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they remain central to Scripture because they are central to our understanding properly of God properly of ourselves and properly of what the good news is, why it's so good. So in our text this morning, we're going to find a parable where one man goes home justified and the other man does not go home justified. What could be more important than understanding clearly why anyone goes home justified? Well, this paragraph in the 18th chapter of Luke is most deserving of our attention this morning. In this text, Jesus, instead of giving a dissertation or speaking in lofty language, what Jesus simply does is he provides a simple parable. But in this simple parable comes to us great clarification on this matter of justification. And it's a parable about two men. And this parable is about two men that are praying. And it's that simple. we got two praying people here. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector and they're in the same proximity. And Jesus could not have chosen two men whose social esteem was a more stark contrast to one another. The Pharisee on one side is considered an expert in the law of God and was deemed a most pious religious individual. You couldn't find one that would be more pious. You know, our ears are often, when we hear the word Pharisee, we oftentimes immediately think in negative words or negative connotations that come along with that word Pharisee. But we should not allow that to color the reality of how these men were understood in their own context and in their own day by the Jewish people of Jesus' day. In fact, one would not have to look far at all to find that a Pharisee lived an exemplary life and nothing short of an exemplary life. In fact, the whole tenor of their life was one that was devoted to pious living. That was the core of what they thought about and what they were devoted to. It was a devotion to abstaining from any and every evil vice and engaging in obedience to God's law with fervor. If anyone served as a model of holy living in the ancient day, it was the Pharisee. We can't allow our negative connotations to color the way they would be perceived in their day. If anyone served as a model to how to pray, it would be a Pharisee. 
If anyone served as a model of what it looked like to be in favor with God, one would quickly say, well, it's the Pharisees. The Jewish community would think of a Pharisee perhaps much like the Roman Catholic community might think of their Pope. If anybody's close to God, it's got to be him. If anyone has an in with God, it's got to be him. That's the way that the Pharisees were perceived. Well, on the other hand, we have a tax collector. A publican is another word for it, as we see in some translations. And he was just the opposite of what was just described. To be a tax collector in Rome was considered a most detestable job, particularly as a Jew. You were classed among the most vile of men, really. But as a Jewish person, you were transacting business with a pagan government and a pagan people, the Gentile Romans. And not only were you, particularly as a Jew, engaged in such things that were considered outside of the reservation, but also you were known as having a life of thievery. It was just a given. You were a thief. Because when a tax collector would come to receive taxes and collect taxes, it would be very, very common for them to collect more than what was required. You know, the taxes say we need to get such and such percentage of your income. Well, in fact, it's actually less than that that is needed. But they would ask for more. Why? So they could pocket the leftover. So the work they were involved in was perceived by the society and was commonly accepted by the society as spiritually dirty work. It was spiritually dirty and vile, a vile business. If anyone was far off from God, it was the publican, it was the tax collector. If anyone was far from God's favor, it was the tax collector. And it's for this reason that the Bible often will actually lump tax collectors into the same category as prostitutes. It is the most debased element of society. So you have this stark contrast in these two men. And Jesus is intentionally doing that in this parable. So let's consider what occurs with these two men. They are there to pray, so we find the Pharisee praying. Now, one might construe the language here where it says that the Pharisee prayed with himself to mean, is he just praying to himself? And that would not be an accurate way of evaluating what's going on here. His prayer is certainly to be considered just that. It is considered a prayer directed at God. He simply is standing by himself or with himself, just as the tax collector, we're going to find out, is also standing by himself. So he begins by focusing upon the vices that he has abstained from. He first thanks God that he's not an extortioner. He doesn't rob anybody. He doesn't blackmail anybody. He doesn't threaten anyone to get more money out of them like a shakedown. And often the case, that was what tax collectors would do. Sometimes there was threat involved. Hey, you've got to pay this amount. But in fact, they're just wanting to skim off the top. So he says, thank you that I'm not an extortioner. I don't blackmail anybody or steal from anyone. He also thanks God that he's not 
unjust. I'm not a cheat. I'm not, I'm not unfair in my dealings with people. I have an honest living. And he also thanks God that he's not an adulterer. He is faithful in his marriage. The Pharisee then transitions from this focus upon these vices that he has abstained from to the pious, positive side, the pious things that he engages in. And you don't want to miss this, the profundity of what he actually is claiming here. He says here that I fast twice a week. Now, this would be considered an act of supererogation. It means that it was more than what the law required. The law required that you fast once a year. He not only fasted every week, but he's claiming I fast twice a week. You talk about acts of supererogation go way beyond what would be expected or required. But the scripture also says that in his prayer, he not only tells the Lord, hey, I fast twice a week. He also says, I tithe of everything that I possess, which is another act of supererogation, more than what the law requires. He not only tithed on what he earned, but he also tithed on every single thing that he bought. In fact, in chapter 11, we find that he not only tithed the certain prescribed crops, but the Pharisee was, would also tithe even on the garden herbs as well, which would be way beyond what would be expected or required. And so he's acknowledging this in his prayer. I have abstained from these vices. I've engaged in this pious work, which includes these acts of supererogation. He not only was meticulous in keeping the law, but he was very, very careful to go over and beyond the law. It's remarkable. What could be wrong with all this? Right? One might say, would not the Jews say, don't we have every reason to esteem these men? Well, the answer is actually found in verse 9. When we ask, could there be anything wrong with this? And we're given the underlying reason in verse 9. Notice the whole reason of this parable. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the whole reason he's giving this parable. That they trust in themselves that they are righteous. It's, it's not the fact that the Pharisee is addressing God that's so important, but the self-eulogizing nature of his prayer. And do you see the repetition of the word I in his prayer? While the prayer is directed to God, his heart is wholly bent in on the I. I am not like this. I am not this or that. I'm certainly not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice. I give all of my tithes. You see where his heart, we find where his heart's attention is given over to. But the text also gives us a sure way of assessing if one is self-righteous, trusting in oneself to be righteous. Did you see the end of verse 9? Notice, look at it again. This is a crucial part to verse 9. It says, and 
despised others. Did you catch that? He spoke this parable to some who trusted to themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And that's why we find the Pharisee only a few verses later saying, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you I'm not like this tax collector. You see what's going on? You see, righteousness is something that can only be assessed. Follow this carefully. Righteousness can only be assessed by measuring it against something else. It has to be measured against some standard. That's the only way that you can assess righteousness. It's only in relation to a standard. And in the eyes of the self-righteous man, the righteousness is measured in comparison to others who are less righteous. That's what defines the self-righteous person. The standard by which they measure their righteousness is someone who's less righteous than them. And that's why they despise them. It is a fallen creature valuing their spiritual worth by comparing it to another fallen creature. And by doing so, one's self-assessment, it elevates it to an exalted position. Quite naturally, God is fortunate to have someone like me because I'm not like that tax collector. You see where this Pharisee is assessing and evaluating his righteousness. It is self-righteous and self-righteousness precisely because of the standard by which he is making that evaluation. Such a penetrating passage. As you and I look into our own heart, we often will find the same disposition towards the Lord. You might say, well, I would never have the temerity to be so self-congratulatory as this Pharisee has. I've never prayed the way that this Pharisee is praying. But then again, I wouldn't consider myself to be engaged in anything close to super irrigation. Going beyond, that's not me either we might say. But listen, brothers and sisters and friends, you could be trusting in anything. There's so much that we could insert here that might be more reflective of our own time, our own day, and our own lives. Because see, Satan will gladly give it to you so long as you're trusting in it. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether it's your baptism or whether it's your religious disciplines or whatever it might be. Or whatever it is in your life, he'll gladly give it to you so long as you trust in it. You want success? He'll give you success in learning. He'll give you wealth. He'll give you status. He'll give you rank. He'll give you varied comforts in life. Just enough vices, perhaps, that you know yourself not to be the best person around, but certainly better than the one next door. He'll even give you humility. Think about that for a moment. Satan will even give you humility so long as you trust in it. He'll let you have it. He'll give you regular prayer life so long as you're trusting in it. See, you know we're getting real personal with ourselves here. 
He'll give you poverty or special sufferings so long as you're trusting in it for your piety. Oh, humble me. I don't have riches. I don't have wealth. I don't have health to boast in. Which is really its own special kind of boasting in some, it can, can be in the heart. Our hearts are so deceptive. And it could be anything. Satan will even tice your heart so as to have it entangled in even gross forms of sin. Just so that you might say, I'm only an extreme version of what even good Christians struggle with. You see the deceptiveness there. Where there's this kind of unspoken piety there. It doesn't have to be spoken with the kind of explicitity that the Pharisee is doing. But it's there. A piety, a It doesn't matter if your trusting has to do with specifically even religious things or religious practices or not. So long as you self-assess and you're satisfied with yourself in comparison with others. Others in the workplace. Others in your neighborhood. Others in your own home. This is the way that a man or a woman naturally assesses themselves spiritually. It's natural to... Assess one's spirituality in relation to the person sitting next to us. But Jesus says, perhaps to his audience's surprise, and maybe to your surprise and my surprise, that man did not go home justified. He did not go home right with God, not in God's favor. For the self-exalted one will be humbled. So as you look at the Pharisee and his prayer Consider what other things might be inserted there that would reflect our own hearts. Are we trusting in anything that we have done or anything that we are? Are we finding our boast in our pious acts in any fashion whatsoever? And they may be distinctively Christian things. They were given over as a good gift from God, but we've turned it into something that we're trusting in and finding self-righteousness in. Well, let's turn to the, the prayer of the other man, this publican or this tax collector. He's not standing up in front where likely the Pharisee would have been so that he could be heard and be seen by all. He's kind of like back over in the corner. He's kind of like far away, it says there. Standing afar off. And the publican cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is not the cry of a disingenuous man. He's not practicing some artificial piety. Oh, you know, be merciful to me in some outward pious way. We're getting a peek into the heart of this man who is genuinely calling out to the Lord. We find even his posture even speaks to where his heart's disposition is. He's looking up and he's, he's beating his chest with genuine contrition. He realizes something about himself that the Pharisee doesn't realize or see in himself. It was common to pray with one's eyes lifted upward to heaven. But the scripture says with this particular man, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. That's how affected he is by his assessment. 
So he beats his chest as a man in deep grief, deep agony. His prayer is as brief as it is authentic. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a very short in comparison to all the wordiness of the self-righteous Pharisee. We need to pause a moment to consider exactly what this man is crying when he says, be merciful. The verb is not just a call to God to be kind to him or be generous to him. But the verb actually comes from our English word propitiation. Now this is significant. Because what is propitiation? Propitiation is the removal of wrath. It is a removal of anger. And so when he says be merciful, it has really appeasement at heart. The satisfaction of the offended party. Placate the offended party. To satisfy the offended party. So it's important to see that the the concept that underlies his cry for mercy is to be propitiated. Let your anger be removed. Let your displeasure be removed. And you see what's taking place here. This man mentioning nothing about himself in relation to other tax collectors. He's not doing that. He doesn't say, okay, I'm a tax collector, but you know, you, you know Tom over there. I'm not like him. I might steal a few things off the top, but not like him. We don't find him comparing himself to even other tax collectors. He mentions nothing about himself in relations to prostitutes. And interestingly enough, he doesn't even make a comparison with that Pharisee. There's no comparisons that he's making with other fallen creatures. He's not exercising a self-assessment by comparing himself with other fallen creatures. He is assessing his status on its comparison to God. The God to whom he's looking is perfect. The God to whom he's praying is pure. The God to whom he's praying is righteous. The one that he's directing his prayer to is the point of comparison. He sees himself the way that God sees him. And that's why he's brought down with humiliation. Not how someone else would assess him, but how God assesses him. And listen, friends, nothing will bring your heart lower in humility then when you stop making your comparison with those about you and you find that you see yourself the way God sees you, not the way others see you. We see that this holy, pure, righteous God looks upon me and I don't compare at all. He's not assessing himself spiritually as one naturally would do. But rather, this is a supernatural assessment. Praise God, he sees his heart the way God sees it. Singularly focused on comparing himself 
with God and seeing himself the way God sees him. He sees himself as a sinner deserving of God's wrath, deserving of God's displeasure, deserving of God's condemnation. That's the opposite of mercy, you see. That's why we can say that he is a seeing that what it is that he deserves. Only one who sees that he deserves wrath calls out for mercy. But that's what we find in this heart of this man. He sees himself as one that is deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. That's why there's no exaltation, no commendation, no self-boasting in this man. In fact, technically, there is a definite article before this word sinner. He actually doesn't cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He actually says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. Yes. We're really getting to the depths of the way this man sees himself. His focus is upon no other person or person's sin or any other person's righteousness. His heart is focused only upon the Lord. It's not on this sinner and that sinner. His focus is saying, I'm the sinner. I'm the one who's the offender. I'm the one who's committed treason. I'm the one that's deserving of your wrath. I have nothing on which I can hang my hope. I dare not ask you for anything except pure, unadulterated mercy. That's the only thing I can ask you for. It's the only thing I can ask you for. I have nothing to bring you. I have nothing to cry out to you in which I can boast. No foot I can stand on. So I can only ask for mercy, pure mercy, meaning I don't bring anything to the table but my sin. Pure mercy is what I need. I have nothing on which to stand in comparison to you. I have no self-righteousness upon which to stand. You know, sometimes we differentiate mercy and grace as being two sides of the same coin or two angles of the same diamond. Which is very helpful, I think. And the scripture actually does this. Where grace is spoken of more of God giving us something that we don't deserve. You do not deserve his favor, but he gives it to you anyway. Whereas mercy accents the element of God withholding from you what you do deserve. I do deserve his wrath, but his hand is stayed. I do deserve his condemnation, but his hand is stayed. And I think that that's helpful to us in this particular context. That The text fits well with that distinction. His plea for mercy is in recognition of what he deserves. And he's calling on the Lord to be merciful. Because he sees himself as God sees him. He sees himself for what he truly is. I'm the sinner deserving of your condemnation. Oh, be merciful. And I don't have anything to commend myself to you. I'm asking for pure, free mercy. That's why we confessed that this morning from the confession. On free grace. So do you see the heart of this passage? 
No one looks outside of himself for mercy unless he sees himself in need of it because he has no righteousness in himself. None. The Pharisee thought himself to be exalted in a very safe place because he was rich in righteousness even though the reality was that he was in utter poverty. Whereas the tax collector, seeing himself aright, saw his soul impoverished. He saw that he had nothing. He knew that his place before God was the sinner, and he compared himself to no other creature. So this impoverished soul cried out, to the one against whom he had sinned and offended. He cried out to him for mercy. And you know what he found out when he cried out for mercy? He found out that God Almighty was more rich in mercy than he was spiritually poor. He went down to his house justified on that day not trusting in himself for only he who humbles himself will be exalted so this poor impoverished soul with no righteousness to claim was found at the end of the day rich in righteousness and the man who thought himself rich in righteousness and had much to offer God was actually the one who had none And he went home not justified. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to listen very carefully. Because I believe that we now, only now, are getting at the heart of this passage. There is a sense in which the Pharisee was himself calling upon God for something. Watch this real carefully. The Pharisee was calling upon God for something. And what he was calling upon God for was pure justice. The Pharisee was calling upon God to be fair. He wanted God to be fair with him. He wanted God to give him what he deserves. That is the heart of the prayer of the Pharisee. He is asking God to give him what he deserves. I have done all of this. And I'm surely not like that publican. I've done all of this. So you surely ought to find me justified. Be fair, God. Give me what I deserve. Do you see that? That's what underlies the Pharisee's entire prayer. That's the whole tenor of his prayer. But by contrast, this tax collector casts himself on God's mercy because he saw himself aright. And he knew that the last thing that he wanted from God was fairness. 
The last thing that he wanted from God was justice. The last thing he wanted was for God to give him what he deserves. You see, therein is that we're now getting to the guts of this whole text. What underlies the Pharisee's prayer is that he wants God to be fair with him. What underlies the cry of the tax collector is he's asking God not to be fair with him. I need need your mercy. That's the only thing I'm asking for. Pure, unadulterated mercy. Knowing that while God is under obligation to extend to me what I deserve, he's under no obligation to extend to me mercy. And the tax collector understood this. The Lord's under obligation to condemn me. He's under no obligation to give me mercy. But he cries out for it. Dear friends, do you know how many persons that have come to God and crying out simply for mercy? I don't have anything in my hands, no price I bring. In my hands, I have nothing. Do you know how many people God has turned away who have come pleading for mercy? Zero. He has perfect record. There's not one that's been turned away. Not one. Not one impoverished soul has come to God with this prayer of the tax collector and been turned away. Be it a publican, a prostitute, an extortioner, an unjust person, adulterer, a Pharisee, you fill in the blank. He's not turned away a one of them. What a good and loving God. Well, how ultimately has God made a way for his wrath to be removed? Who ultimately is the one who's propitiated God and removed his wrath? Well, listen to this verse from 1 John. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He was made like us in every respect without sin. Quote in Hebrews, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of his people. Isn't this wonderful news? That we need not come to the Lord with a payment. This is what I've done. Nor do we need to keep away from the Lord because we have nothing to offer. That needs to equally be accented. We don't stay away because we have nothing to offer. No. What did we sing a moment ago? We sang these words, not what my hands have done. I don't have anything to bring to you that I've done. But I'm not going to stay away. I'm going to come and cry out for mercy. We turn outside of ourselves and out of a true sense of our sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ with grief and hatred of our sin, we turn from it unto God. And you know what ought to motivate us in this regard? Is our brother Matthew. (laughs) Our brother Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. And he turned to the Lord Jesus in faith. 
And upon doing so, he had a party at his house. Other tax collectors that were just like him. He invited all of his converted friends over for a dinner party, and Jesus was the chief guest. And the Pharisees, not far off, began to mock, saying, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he in any way affiliate with those people? And Jesus' response was so profound, and it correlates so well with this text. Jesus said, Those who are well need not a physician, but only those who are sick. I did not even come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus didn't even come for those that are self-righteous. He didn't come for those that are trusting in something that they've done. He's coming to those like the tax collector that have nothing that they've done. No righteousness to offer. And he extends mercy. Do you need mercy this morning? Do you need just pure mercy? And that means that if you have never come to Christ Jesus and found that, yes, he is the only propitiation, he's the only wrath bearer, only in him can I find hope. If you've never embraced him, embrace him today. And you will find that God is more merciful than you are sinful. But brother and sister, if you are burdened by your sin and perhaps wallowing wallowing around in guilt, and your walk with God is at a standstill, and you're wrestling with your sin, could it be that your heart is turned away from running to the Lord because of the same reasons that the Pharisee gave? Could it be that you are not turning unto the Lord because you're, in, you're trusting in something that you have or you're not seeing the greatness of God's mercy that's extended to you. Come. Come to Him. Don't fix yourself up first. That's not how God's going to receive you. Come just as you are in all of your poverty. The gospel's for the Christian, not just the non-Christian. Brothers and sisters, let's hear this well and rejoice in it. The Lord God calls you the child of God. Keep coming. And don't try to fix yourself up first. Keep coming to me for mercy. Come and buy it, but don't bring money. For it's given to you without cost. Because it cost him everything to give it to you for free. So don't insult him. Don't insult him by bringing something. Come and buy, but don't bring any money because it cost him everything to give it to you for free. So come and take it by faith, freely. Let our thoughts close this morning with these beautiful words from the hymn writer. Come ye weary and ye heavy laden, Lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you know how to stir our souls 
by setting forth your grace, your mercy is free. Indeed, it's true. If we tarry until we're better, we won't come at all. Oh, Father, may you give us eyes to see ourselves like the tax collector in this passage. May you cause us, Father, to stop comparing ourselves to others and to compare ourselves to the way you see us. And may you show us the depth of our need so that we come to you with nothing, but we gain everything. We come to you with nothing, no righteousness of our own, simply crying out for mercy through Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sin, the one who's removed the wrath because of his person and work. And cause our hearts, Father, to continue to run like deer, not away from you, but toward you. For we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. More happy, but not more secure. That's the case of our brothers and sisters in glory. Their happiness and their joy is far beyond what we could ever measure here below. But their security even now does not exceed the security that we have. Oh, praise be to God. Brothers and sisters, receive the blessing of our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen.